We are able to open up our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5, as we've had the opportunity to be together. We've been going through the Beatitudes, a very special portion of Scripture, uh, really one of the high points of our Lord's teaching. We've been going through each of these Beatitudes individually, and today we're going to come down to verses 10 through 12, down towards the very end of the Beatitudes, these last two really go together, and really they have to do with the ramifications of your new identity in Christ. And, you know, it really is true that when you are identified as belonging to a certain group of people, there are ramifications that go along with that. Uh, That fact was driven home to me very clearly several years ago when I was traveling in Israel uh, for business. We were there to develop a relationship with a different school and see see if we could establish a relationship with that particular school over in Israel, and it was me and another colleague. We had a day free, and so we thought, well, let's go bomb around Jerusalem. I know you shouldn't use those two words together, but that was essentially what we did. We just kind of ran around town and got to see some sites with the free day that we had. Um, and as, as all of you who have been to Israel know, the, the old city of David really is on a peninsula of land that sticks out into two different valleys that meet down in the very center. And the old city of David, really the pool of Siloam, is, is down at that point where those two valleys meet. And there's a, there's a five-way intersection that exists where those two valleys meet in this very historic spot that was well known in Jesus' day and, and, and is still known today, the pool of Siloam. Right across the street from the Pool of Siloam is a Palestinian neighborhood called Silwan, right? Uh, You you can see Siloam, Silwan, and I know just from having been to Israel before that you're not supposed to go into that neighborhood. There's all sorts of nasty stories. When riots start in Jerusalem, it's usually coming out of Silwan. When the archaeologists go to work at Siloam, the people who live in Silwan throw stones across the street and try to hit them. Uh, Really, really not nice people there. I was using the Israeli app, you'd think that they would know, uh, called Waze, right? It was developed by a bunch of Israelis, and I was using that as my navigation around town. And, and I know good and well the stay out of that part of town. I was driving a rental car with Israeli plates on it, uh, which over in Israel, there are Palestinian plates and Israeli plates so that everyone knows exactly which side you kind of belong to. And so my app told me, take a left. Well, it meant a hard left, not a gradual left. And before I knew it, I was right in the middle of a street, very narrow street, where I did not belong at all. And that was made very evident to me by the looks on the faces of the villagers who began to come out of their doors and stare at my car. And they could see my license plate as an Israeli license plate, and the looks on their faces told me that I needed to get out of there very, very quickly. My colleague, brave soul that he was, slammed his seat back down, laid down completely so that he was completely out of sight and said, whatever you do, don't stop driving. So I gunned it, floored it right down the street, flying down the way and scratched my rental car up in the process, which by the way, if you ever are driving in Israel, don't scratch your car. Israeli insurance, 10 hours different, different language really hard to work out after the fact. Uh, But we got out and it was okay. The next day we went to meet with the people that we were there to talk to and we told them where we had been. And he said, oh, that's not good. You should not have been there. And we kind of laughed and said, ha ha, yeah, we know it was a mistake. He said, did they throw bricks through your windshield or Molotov cocktails at all at the car? 
And we said, no. And that was the moment that we knew that we had almost really, really been in trouble. The reason I tell you that story is to say that on that day, my license plate identified me, along with my very American face, as being way out of place, right? I did not belong in that hostile neighborhood, and there could have been serious ramifications and repercussions for being out of my place. While driving through that, particu that particular zip code, I did not want to carry that particular ID card of having an Israeli license plate because it placed me into grave danger. Jesus' message here in these two Beatitudes is very clear, that like it or not, if you belong to him and have upon your life stamped a license plate that belongs to the kingdom of heaven, if you're carrying an ID card that grants you access to heaven, you, like it or not, are living in a hostile zip code. And while the ride through that zip code is going to be short, if you are faithful to carry and reveal your credentials as he has told us you must, then it's going to land you in some pretty uncomfortable situations. You see, carrying an ID card that grants you access to eternal blessing also brings with it a cost today. And that is what Jesus tells us here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. He says this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you." <laughs> Now, there's a lot going on in these verses, and we have to tear into them, but I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together, so let me kind of get us caught up here a little bit. We've really been talking about the nature of discipleship and the obligations that come with belonging to our Lord and Savior. And what we've been told so far in these Beatitudes is that we've essentially been given a brand new identity in Christ that results in a very specific list of different kinds of behaviors. And, and the first six Beatitudes that we've looked at, they, they made this point very clearly, and they were essentially all things that occur internally. There are things that happen in your heart between you and God. We've talked about the idea of what it means to be poor in spirit, to live a life of meekness, to live a life of purity, gentleness, uh, peaceability, mercy. These are all kind of heart attitudes that exist within you and reflect the reality of what God has done inside of you. But these last three Beatitudes, where we're commanded to be peacemakers, where we're told that, that blessed are those who are persecuted and blessed are you when people insult you, these are really three Beatitudes that show what happens when, a, when the life of a, of a believer really hits the public. When you take the ID card that you've been given out into the world, what happens? When you start flashing your badge as being a Christian, what is the result? And, and how is that going to be received? When, when people recognize you for who you are, what happens next? The last time we were together, we looked at the command to be a peacemaker and talked about the reality that inherent in the need to be a peacemaker is the idea that when you're a believer, you will run into opposition as well. So then the question that comes out of that command in verse 9 as we transition into verse 10 is very simple. What, what happens when the world has no interest in making peace with us? 
What happens when they go from opposing us to outright abusing us? And while we started out by being informed that our spiritual lives begin with an understanding of our emptiness way back in the first beatitude, here we're told that our spiritual lives also end with the recognition that your reflection of God is going to result in opposition to you that no matter how hard you try at making peace, they will not have it. So in light of that, is this still an ID card that you really want to carry around? And Jesus' answer is very clear. He doesn't shift the tone of these verses at all. He has said, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And here he gets to this point where things really get hard and he is still saying, blessed, happy are you, shockingly enough, when people persecute you and refuse to allow you to make peace with them. What he's essentially saying here to us is that we've all been given a tremendous privilege to be adopted into the family of God. But with that privilege comes a responsibility, and and with the responsibility comes a cost. And in this section, we're having to answer the question, is the cost of being a disciple worth the benefit? And Jesus in these final Beatitudes is saying, yes, absolutely it is, because when the world opposes you, God accepts you. When the world rejects you, God preserves you. When the world abuses you, God rewards you. And those are the last three Beatitudes that he gives us here, that the benefit is worth the cost. And so we have to really tackle this subject together this morning and get down into this text. And really what I want us to do is just look at three different aspects of living faithfully in the midst of a very unfaithful world. Three different aspects of living faithfully in the midst of unfaithfulness all around us. And we have to begin by looking at the rejection. That's where we'll start. What, what is this rejection that we experience as disciples of Jesus Christ? And is that rejection really relevant to us. Let's, let's start there, okay? Is it relevant for us in our modern 21st century American world to talk about the rejection of the world, the persecution of the world? Because to be honest with you, this is not something that all of us feel very hotly on a daily basis. We have missionaries like Raymond Choi come in and talk about the persecution that is ramping up over the nation of China. And while that breaks our hearts and we look at that and that's a hard thing for us to hear, it doesn't really affect our daily lives all that much. And so it's easy for us to come to verses like this and gloss through them and say, well, thankfully, God be praised, that doesn't apply to me at all. Or does it? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Sometimes we're tempted to overlook these verses because no one has threatened to turn me into a flaming torch or throw me to the dogs. And while our period of history is extremely unique in that the active persecution of the American church doesn't exist to the same degree that it does throughout the world or that it has throughout church history, we have to start out by defining the terms because oftentimes when we hear the word persecution, we can only think of visions of lions and human torches and and gruesome torture that fill our minds. And you think, how is this text even applicable to me at all if they're not trying to put me to death? And that was my question that I wrestled with this week. What, what do we do with this text and how do we think rightly about it? And earlier in the week, I had some time with Pastor John 
we were waiting for a meeting and he was working on his message. I was sitting there and I said, well, I might as well work on mine. Um, and so I pulled out the text and I was looking at it and I said, at some point, he, we, we stopped to talk. And I said, what, what do you do with this text? Thought, let's ask the master himself. What, what do you do with this? And, and right away he had the answer. He said, look, that text is not talking about some kind of state-led corporate persecution that in, it, it results in your actual termination of life. What that text is talking about is any kind of opposition whatsoever that you are experiencing because of the sake of the gospel. And the reality is, if you're not experiencing any kind of opposition, you're probably not reflecting the gospel to the degree that you should be. You're not speaking the truth to, to a sufficient degree if you're not experiencing some kind of opposition for it. And I thought, whoa, well, there's the answer to the question. Very convicting stuff. And if we look at this text that way, all of a sudden it really unlocks itself before us and becomes extremely relevant to our lives. Because you see, the opposition of the world, it can, it can span a reaction of, of personal isolation all the way to death and every step in between. And, and therefore, whatever form opposition takes in your life for the sake of the truth, whether that looks like the spiteful rejection of a neighbor, the overlooked promotion at work, the hostile debate with a family member at the holidays whether it looks like some kind of corporate state-led persecution like we see happening in China, whether it results even in your death, the injury or removal of personal property, the point is the same. To live faithfully in a fallen world is to invite their opposition. And so while we may never be placed into an arena we may well end up losing jobs or promotions or relationships with family members, co-workers and neighbors because we refuse to compromise our testimony and insist upon speaking the gospel. You see, when you are faithful to speak the truth, the world does not like that. An example of that would, e would even be seen just a couple of weeks ago in the in the media, actually, you see the backlash against the missionary John Chow, who was put to death by the Indian tribe that he was seeking to minister and witness to. Now, I don't know every in and out of his theology, so I'm not standing here to fully endorse everything that he believed or exactly what he was doing. But what I do know is that there is a man who had a passion to see the gospel go into every corner of the world. He went and identified the darkest corner of that world that he could find, a place that the gospel has never once been taken. And he desired to go to that violent people, full well knowing what the potential cost could be, so that he could fulfill the Great Commission. He, he prepared for this mission for years, and he, he tried to do it multiple times and did everything that he could to be well prepared. And this is something that, that he did because he loved the truth and he loved his Savior. And yet, in the media, how is he being portrayed? He's being portrayed as an ignorant bigot, a Western colonialist, a foolish and deranged Christian who may as well represent all the rest of us as well. You see, now there's an example of someone who sought to do that which was right, to fulfill the commands of the Lord, and yet he is being slandered for it, as are the rest of those who would dare to push their faith upon someone else. All because he dared to bring the truth to a place where it was unknown and he had a passion to shatter darkness that existed in that tribe for thousands of years. 
You see, the world is not friendly to the message of the gospel. And when you proclaim it and you proclaim it faithfully, the, th- the, 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 the truth is the same today as it was in the time of Jesus. And even though the persecution, the opposition may look different, it still certainly exists. So, what is the nature of that rejection? If we're still talking about this rejection, what does it look like? How does, how does this text, how does Jesus in this text define this opposition or this rejection? And really throughout it, if you take these two uh, Beatitudes together, he gives us three different words, three different manifestations of what this rejection looks like. And, and really it goes everywhere from attitudes to actions and accusations. The first word he uses here is the word persecute. And it's really referring to a form of physical abuse. The word that he uses is a word that means to chase, to drive out, to expel, to run after someone and to physically harass them. It's a, it's a very active word. The original word is the word dioko. You can kind of hear it in the word. It's this active kind of violent word where you're seeking to do injury physically to someone else. It's a rejection that is very disruptive to your world. It's not, it's not fun to be harassed or pursued. But he's saying, if you're faithful to righteousness, you will be pushed out. You will be rejected. You will be unable to interact with the world the same way that they interact with one another. It will not be the same for you. He goes on. And he also says that you are blessed when people insult you. That's the second term that he uses here. You're blessed when people insult you. And here we we kind of transition from a a form of physical abuse to a form of verbal abuse. This word insult, it means to denounce, to reproach, or to revile, to mock, or to cut. It has that idea of a sarcastic, cutting kind of speech. And in secular literature of the day, it was often used to to speak of the effort of trying to cover someone with shame or pile disgrace high upon them. It means to make someone to feel deep shame. It's, It's the intentional effort to strip away their pride, to take away their covering, and to reveal their utter disgrace means to shamefully throw the reality back into someone's face. And the great irony here is that the testimony of righteousness is meant to confront the world with the reality of their own sin. And yet far from accepting it, the, the, the common response of the world is to, to seek to turn the tables and make you feel like something is wrong with you instead. To insult you, when in reality they're the ones who should be repenting in light of the righteousness. Jesus says the nature of this persecution is a physical form, it's a verbal form, and then it even goes on into a kind of a mental form of abuse where he says they will speak all sorts of falsehoods against you. They will, they will falsely say all kinds of evil against you. The most valuable commodity that a Christian has is his public or her public testimony, Right? I mean, that, that is the one thing that we seek to form because we love Christ. We, we seek to portray his righteousness in our lives. And yet here, far from accepting that, they see it, they reject it, and they speak all sorts of falsehood against it. They seek to unfairly destroy it and say malicious lies about it. 
In the early church, the word on the street about the early Christians was that they were cannibalistic, incestuous pagans who ate and drank blood and believed themselves to love one another incestuously, even while referring to each other as brothers and sisters. And so the early Romans believed that they were violating the most basic forms of common decency in the Roman world. Why? Why did they believe that? Because of the lies that had been told about them. You see, this is the nature of the opposition that we can expect from the world that is around us. It is not fun, and it takes different forms, different fashions to different strengths. We ask ourselves, okay, well, if that's, if that's the nature of it, what is the source of this rejection? Well, it's very interesting. Look at verse 11. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And in your Bible, it's, it's likely that that word people is in italics. How many people's Bible have the word people in italics? Yeah? Most of the room, right? And the reason for that is that that word in the original text is not actually there. Because in the English, right, if you take that word out, there's really no subject to the sentence and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, you have to have a subject of the sentence. And so they had to insert that word for the sentence to make sense. But in the original language, that word does not exist. It just says, blessed are you when blank insults you or persecutes you. There is no people there. It really is a, is a fill-in-the-blank kind of a deal. It's very interesting that the source of this persecution is it's left incredibly generic. It doesn't say when your enemy persecutes you. It doesn't say when your neighbor persecutes you or your government persecutes you. It's literally a fill-in-the-blank kind of a situation. Blessed are you when anybody comes after you for the sake of your faith. Anybody and everybody, anyone who does not bow their knee to Christ will oppose you. That's what he's saying here. My final observation on these verses as we're talking about the nature of this rejection is that it really gets very intensely personal here as we get down into verse 11, where the rubber starts to really meet the road. Because throughout all of these Beatitudes, Jesus has been saying those and them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those. It's, it's really kind of distant. But here in verse 11, all of a sudden, everything shifts. What's he say? Blessed are you. Blessed are you, he says, because he's recognizing that this is not a theoretical happenstance that might or might not happen to you. And if it does, blessed are those to whom this happens. No, he's saying, blessed are you because this will happen to you at some level. The obvious question that we have to ask ourselves at this point, going back to my conversation with our pastor earlier this week, well, what if we're not experiencing any kind of opposition whatsoever because of our testimony of righteousness? What if we're not experiencing any kind of rejection from the world at any level whatsoever because of the sake of Christ? Are you just blessed with good friends who happen to be nice people in the midst of an uncaring culture? We go back to the words of our pastor. If you're not experiencing any level of opposition at all, it means that you're not adequately representing the truth. Because according to the word of Christ right here, every time the world comes into contact with the truth, either they will bristle or they will repent. 
And so if you're not experiencing the bristling of the world around you, it means that you're looking too much like them and you're not proclaiming the truth loudly enough for them to hear it because if you were, you would begin to experience the reality of their rejection. Jesus assumes here that it will happen to all of his followers at different levels and different ways at different points throughout their faithfulness. And that's what we can expect as well. That is the nature of this rejection. The question that we have to ask then is really the second area, the second aspect that we need to talk about. It's the reason. We've seen the rejection. Now let's talk about the reason. We have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why does the world act this way? It doesn't make any logical sense at all, right? I mean, who wants to pick on someone who is intent upon living with a spirit of meekness, righteousness, purity, mercy, and peace? I mean, someone who lives consistently that way and reflecting the character of God sounds to us in our Christian minds like a pretty good person. We want to be around that kind of a person, and that's because we prioritize those kinds of things. But in the world's mind, they don't see it that way. They don't live that way. And when they see your, Christ, your Christ-like life, when they see your meekness, your righteousness, your purity, your mercy, your peacefulness, your very presence by being different is a mirror of everything that they are not. And it causes their consciences to be violated. You say, well, this, this doesn't make any sense at all that they would want to come after us and oppose us for being the way that God expects for us to be. Romans 8, 7. There's a couple different passages that address this. I'll just read some for you. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. You see, when your life starts to look like his, that means that the world's hostility will be transferred from him to you. And so it should come as no surprise at us, which is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 20, a slave is not greater than his master, is he? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is the reason they do it. It's not because they just don't like us. It's because they don't like the image of Christ that they see in us. And yet we must still be faithful to portray it. Out of the six times that Matthew talks about this concept of opposition or persecution in his book, something that his Jewish audience shortly after the ascension of Christ when he wrote the book knew a lot about, four of those times are in this chapter. And every single time it's closely linked to, the relate, to our relationship to Christ. And, and in that sense, Jesus gives us here the reason that this opposition takes place. And he, he essentially, in verses 10 through 12, gives us two reasons for the opposition. Look with me. You can see it right there. He says, the reason that this opposition happens in verse 10 is for the sake of righteousness. And in verse uh, 11, he says, blessed are you when they do these things against you. Why? Because of me two reasons why this 
opposition takes place. The first is for the sake of righteousness. And that idea of righteousness there in verse 10 has to back up and encompass all the different beatitudes that came before it. You see, these beatitudes, Jesus started his greatest sermon with them, are all the kinds of things that that he prioritizes because they reflect the nature of God. He's saying, these things that bring blessing are not appreciated in the world. He's saying, the world does not appreciate the hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And by seeking to be righteous, you're, you're setting yourself up in direct contrast with those who love darkness rather than light. He says, when you seek to live in a way that is gentle, a way that hungers and thirsts and desires righteousness, a way that is merciful, a way that is pure, a way that is peaceable, when you seek to live a life of righteousness, and all those concepts are, are really centered in that, in that broader umbrella concept of righteousness, when you seek to, to implement all these things that Jesus says characterizes the life of a faithful disciple, they will not like it. When you act like you're part of God's family, they are going to treat you like you are part of God's family. And that may not be fun, but according to our Lord, that is a part of discipleship. And ultimately, all of that righteousness that exists within our life is not there because we put it there. It's there because God implanted it deeply within us through the work of Christ. And that's then how we get down to the second reason they oppose us. And it's much, much more fundamental. They don't just oppose us because of the righteousness they see in us. They oppose us because it flies in the face of the one who put it there on our behalf. You see, they oppose us on account of Christ. He is the embodiment of everything beautiful in all the other Beatitudes. And that's what Jesus says. Blessed are you when they come after you because of me, verse 11. 2 Timothy 3.12 says it this way, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that to be at peace with the world is to be the enemy of God. There is no middle ground whatsoever in discipleship. And it's, it's a radical statement that paints the reality in stark contrast that either you're God's friend and you're the world's enemy, or you're the world's friend and therefore you're God's enemy. But you must be one or the other, and that puts you into stark contrast with the other side. And those of us who are seeking to live lives of righteousness, those who desire righteousness, we, we are that way because Christ has made us that way. And that is the reason why Jesus says, they will come after you and it will be because of me. Now, there's so much comfort bound up in that. What he's essentially saying there when he says, they will say all kinds of evil against you because of me, he's saying, they will do this because you belong to me. That really is the, the force of the grammar that's going on here in the text. He's saying, they will come after you not just because of me, but because you belong to me. And there is so much comfort that exists in that statement. Is there a better place to be identified? where you belong to him, and, and while the world may seek to assault and insult you, they cannot ever touch this great eternal reality. Now there's an additional nugget that, 
is given to us by someone who was there on the day that Jesus preached this message. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll see it together. Peter, the apostle, was there on the day that Jesus delivered these Beatitudes. He heard Jesus say these things. And we know that he heard him say them because he essentially quotes it directly over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. And he gives us a little bit additional information on how the believer is supposed to respond when this kind of thing happens. And it's very interesting because it's almost as though Peter is giving us some, some after-the-fact information that Jesus gave to him privately. I can, just, I can just see Peter having gone to Jesus after he finished the sermon in the sermon debrief that the disciples had with one another and with the Lord saying, what was that about suffering for the sake of righteousness? That's not computing. And Jesus says, it will someday, and then continues his instruction privately, which then Peter comes and gives to us here in chapter 3, verse 14, after having had decades worth of time to reflect upon the Lord's instruction and having time to actually practice this. But he says here in 3.14, here's where he quotes the beatitude. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, it's the exact same idea. He says, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But instead, here's the additional information, the command, the instruction that he gives to us. He says, rather than fearing them or being troubled by them, when you suffer for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of Christ, you're still blessed. So then do this. Instead of being afraid, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. The right response to being persecuted for the sake of righteousness on account of Christ? Peter says, don't get distracted. Refuse to live in fear. Put your focus back upon the person of Christ who is your Lord. Sanctify him as Lord in your heart and Maintain your testimony of righteousness prepared to continue to give answers about the very thing that they're coming after you for. He's saying here, if you're accepted by society back in Matthew 5, it means that you are reflecting society. Because if you reflect the life of Christ, you will be rejected by them on account of him and his righteousness that he has planted within you. So, if that's the case, if that's what we can expect, how do we deal with this? And this is where we go from seeing the reason for the rejection down to the relief from it. So we've seen the rejection, we've seen the reason for it, and now we see the relief from it. Look at the command that Jesus gives us back in Matthew chapter 5. What's he say in verse 12? He's expressed the reality that rejection's coming your way. He's given us the reasons of why that rejection is coming. So what does he say by way of encouragement? Because so far that's all been really very discouraging, right? How does he say we can be encouraged in the face of this kind of rejection? All we're seeking to do is that which is right, and they're going to throw it back in our face. 
So where do we find relief in that kind of a situation? Here's the command that he gives us. Rejoice and be glad. That's the command that we're supposed to implement when this kind of rejection takes place. Rejoice and be glad. And and he uses two different words to heighten the emotion behind this. It's, It's not because of the pain. We don't rejoice because we're suffering. Instead, he goes on and he says, you are to rejoice looking forward to what is coming. Rejoice and be glad because of what's coming and what you know to be true. And and here in verse 12, he uses some very strong words. It means exceeding joy. It means to be leaping with joy. It it means more than just be happy. It means more than just be glad. It's talking about an exuberant, radiant kind of gladness. And you say, well, How is it possible to be exuberantly glad in the face of suffering that has come about because of the rejection of the world? How is that possible? It can only be possible if you look forward to what is coming for you. And that's exactly what he says. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. Peter says it this way over in 1 Peter 1, verses 6-7. through You don't have to turn, I'll read it for you. He says, in this trial, he's talking about, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The key phrase that Peter uses there that brings about the inexpressible joy he's talking about in light of the world's rejection is this, that that rejection becomes for you the proof of your faith. And Peter says, your faith being proven by their rejection That is a state that is more valuable than gold because the opposition, the rejection, the persecution serves as a megaphone that screams, you are different and therefore belong to Christ. Their rejection of you is a certain kind of down payment upon the ultimate proclamation that will come someday when you step into heaven and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because if you were not being faithful, if you did not have faith, they would not be rejecting you. And so when they do reject you, Peter says, that's more valuable than gold because it serves as proof that your faith is real. So keep going because the reward that is coming is great. See, there's no greater reward than this. Even in the face of suffering and rejection, to be found in the family of the master, the one who saved you and implanted fresh, new, clean life inside your soul. We go back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus here gives us two reasons to rejoice and be glad in the face of this kind of rejection and suffering. He says, first, you can see it there because he says the word for twice. He says, rejoice and be glad for reason number one, and then for reason number two. The first reason there, for your reward in heaven is great. You see, there's a certain kind of relief that comes in the reward. He says, your reward is great and it is reserved in heaven. The nature of it is immense and the location of it is secure. 
And he's saying it's not just a result of your persecution. It is a reward. It, the, literally, the word he uses there is wages. It is reserved in heaven. Your wages for having endured, your, your wages for the reality of your new life in Christ has been put aside in heaven for you, and it is being protected for you there now. Now, I don't want us to miss all the other things that Jesus has piled into this passage already, right? Where he's already said, blessed are for theirs will be. Blessed are for they're going to gain, right? Look, look at everything that he's already said. He has said in verse three, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. Verse six, they shall be satisfied. Verse seven, they shall receive mercy. Verse eight, they shall see God. Verse nine, they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, those are all the realities of spiritual benefits that God is reserving in heaven for us. And here in verse 12, he says, look, when you're facing suffering, don't forget that the day is coming when all of those things that he has promised you because of your new life will be granted to you. Your faith will become sight. You will be comforted. You will receive mercy. You shall see God. The kingdom of heaven will be yours. The reality of those things, they've already been set aside for you in the heavens today, and the day will come when they will be dispensed to you. In fact, Revelation chapter 11 talks about that day. Turn over there with me. Revelation 11 verse 18 describes the day when all of these benefits that have been reserved for the people of God are fully and finally poured out upon them. And it really is an amazing picture. Revelation chapter 11 verse 18 says, The nations were enraged and your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bond servants, the prophets and the saints and everyone else who fears your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And here's what happens when that day comes, when the reward is poured out upon everyone who fears the name of God. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. The Ark of His Covenant appeared in His temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. You see, when God opens the floodgates of heaven's blessings and pours them out upon His people who have been faithful to fear Him despite the difficulty, there is this great and cataclysmic event where God opens up heaven and all of those blessings come flooding down upon His people. It's this amazing event that's recorded for us in Revelation. Revelation 22.12 says it this way. Jesus, at the very end of the book, reminds John to stay faithful despite the difficulty. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. And when I come, I bring my reward with me to render unto every man according to what he has done. So Jesus is saying here, when you face the opposition of the world, when you see their rejection, whether that's a minimal kind of rejection where someone just doesn't want to talk to you again or whether or not they actually put you to death, rejoice, be glad, 
exuberantly, exceedingly, with great gladness. Why? For your reward in heaven is great, and it has been reserved for you. He goes on, and he gives us another reason why we're able to rejoice. He says, rejoice and find relief, not only in the reward for faithfulness, but also here in the pattern of the faithful who have come before you as well. He says, also rejoice and be glad, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who, re- who were before you. Now, the first time you read this, you kind of look at it, you say, well, that's kind of an awkward way to end the verse. Why do we end the verse there? I don't understand the connection for why I'm supposed to be encouraged by the fact that everyone else who came before me was persecuted in the same way. How is that encouraging to me? The reason it is encouraging is that the hardest thing about rejection oftentimes is the loneliness that comes with it where you say to yourself in that day of difficulty when you're suffering because of the rejection of those around you, no one sees, no one knows, I am by myself and no one can commiserate with this difficulty. And Jesus is saying here, you think you're alone? There is a host of witnesses who have gone before you and know better than you do what's awaiting you, not only during this trial, but at the end of it when they actually reach glory. And he refers to the prophets who went before you. You can look at Acts chapter 7, verse 52. I'm sure that uh, it's talking about the account of of the the martyrdom of of, uh, uh, Stephen, right? Stephen would have been aware of Jesus' statements. He would have known about this. He would have known about the prophets that came before. And he actually goes right to the heart of the matter when he's defending himself before the Sanhedrin. He says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed everyone who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose murderer you have now become as well. I mean, this guy is bold, right? He, he goes back to the prophets and says, you killed all of them, and essentially, I know you're going to kill me too, but that's okay. The idea here in this verse, chapter 5, verse 12, is long ago. He says, persecuted the prophets long ago. There's there's this long period of time where witnesses have been stacking up to the reality that God is faithful despite the difficulty. We could talk about Isaiah, the prophet who was, according to to tradition, sawn in two. We could talk about Jeremiah, who repeatedly throughout his book suffers the rejection and persecution of the world only to be stoned in the end by people who had forced him to come with them against his will. You see, Jesus is saying here, when you suffer for my name's sake, you are in good company, not only with me, but with every other person who has ever been hidden in me. And this is the reason that you're blessed in the face of such persecution, because your reward is secure and it is great, and you are not alone in suffering this kind of rejection. The author of Hebrews says it very poignantly, and turn with me there as we wrap it up here today. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's this beautiful statement that is made that proves this very point. Starting in verse 2, the author of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? 
for time would fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong, they became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight, women receiving back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And then it says this, these were men of whom the world was not worthy, spending their times wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would, they would be made perfect. Therefore, Hebrews says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, as Peter said, sanctifying him in our hearts, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him also endured the cross, despised the shame, sitting down at the right hand of God. That is the pattern of the faithful. The reward is there. It is our eternal salvation. The faithful cloud of witnesses who have gone through the same kinds of difficulties are there, urging us to complete the race and run it faithfully. This is the reason we can find relief in the midst of suffering and seek to pursue a life of faithfulness when things are difficulty with a, a spirit of great exuberant joy and rejoicing. It's because of who he is and what he has done for us. Our reward is secure, and that's our relief. So Jesus tells us, rejoice, be faithful, pursue the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Live in line with the expectations of the Father. Bow before him, recognizing your own poverty. Mourn your sin, rejoice in the work of Christ. Live with a spirit of meek dependence upon your great God. Desire as the Beatitudes have commanded us, righteousness, seek mercy, pursue purity, produce peace. And in the end, when they hate you for all of it, rejoice. For you're held in the grasp of the Father and they cannot touch you. Instead, look to him who caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain your inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. That is how you survive the rejection of the world as they do not appreciate your righteousness or the king whom we all serve together. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word and for the truth that it has to bear upon, that it brings to bear upon our life. 
We do not know the kinds of rejections that the people in this room today are experiencing for the sake of their faith and for the sake of Christ. And yet whatever those kinds of rejections may be, whatever form that may take, encourage the people of this group and in this church to be faithful to your name, to be faithful to pursue the cause of righteousness and to seek to honor the work of your son in our lives. May that be the testimony of our life and come what may, whether that be the repentance of those with whom we interact or their rejection, may we be faithful to that great standard that you have placed before us, aware that our reward is secure in heaven for us and that we are in no way alone as we seek to pursue it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.